but we're going to go ahead and get started then. Friends and neighbors, hello and welcome to Rainforest Writers Read on this final evening of the 2020 Rainforest Festival. And what a beautiful festival it's been. Sunshine and bright stars at night, local music performances, art and science. Mm. I love this festival. It always deepens my gratitude and appreciation for this corner of the Tongass National Forest, this good and beautiful place. We honor this land, Tlingit Ani, and we honor its traditional stewards. The Rainforest Writers Workshop is delighted to partner with the Rainforest Festival this year to bring you this evening of local literature. We put out a call to the community for local writers to share a short piece of their work this evening, and many of you answered that call. So we have a really great lineup here to enjoy together. A great deal of the writing you'll hear tonight first appeared on the page during Rainforest Writers workshops over the last few years. And I wanna take a moment to say thank you to the Petersburg Public Library and John McCabe, who established the library's Art Education Endowment which provides a home for the Rainforest Writers Workshops where writers have been able to find their voices and develop craft and take creative risks and noticeably grow our local literary art community which we celebrate this evening. So we have a nice long lineup, uh, so we'll just get right to it. We can hold our applause to the very end or clap in your living room all the way through, whatever you like. <laughs> uh, at the end, I'll unmute everybody to cheer for those who've read tonight. And we'll have a short intermission halfway through uh, if you're so spellbound that you don't, don't wanna miss a single word of it. But um, so halfway through, we'll have a little intermission. And since you're in your homes already, we can kick back and relax. And I hope you enjoy our, our first reader tonight is Lizzie Thompson. And so I'll go ahead and uh, try to operate the mute and unmute situation here uh, as a heads up to readers. We'll, uh, unmute just right before your turn to read. And for those in the audience, um, I'd recommend putting it on speaker view so you can see the speaker rather than this whole glorious gallery of attendees and um, readers in the wings. Um, so I hope you enjoy. I'm so grateful everybody's here and um, onward. The floor is yours, Lizzie. Thanks, Soren. My first piece is titled Water. I live in a watery place. My house is on 11 foot pilings, though it rests on a hill a quarter mile from the nearest shore. I walk my dog on gravel and wood paths over the spongy bog we call muskeg. I'm surrounded by pools of still water, each a unique shape reflecting images of its neighbors and the sky. Often each plant along the trail is bejeweled in water droplets. They cling to the tip of each spruce needle. They are scattered through the pale green web of a lichen called old man's beard. They pull the grass heads low and dangle along the arc of each stem. I stop and look closely at water droplets and what images they've captured in their lens. The forest upside down and the pale sky nestled in the belly of each drop. I am charmed by the sagging spiderweb's catch of rain. The weather is changeable, but almost always wet and easy to take for granted. 
We are so rich, so saturated in water until we are not. And the wetland we walk above on piles of gravel and planks of wood reminds us that sponges dry quickly, that hundreds of sparkling pools can turn to thick, muddy pits in a few hot days, that the luscious bag of moss can crunch beneath our boots after a week of full sun, that the muskeg is a fragile community, and that while we may be rich in water, we cannot hold it for long. This summer, the rainfall felt merciless, in fact, set the new record for coldest and wettest summer. Some days I felt rather sick of the rain, of gearing up to go out, of having to bathe my dog after every last walk. And yet, the melancholy I feel after a stretch of gray days is preferable to the anxiety of watching my beloved Tongas parched and suffering, dehydrated and fried of color. I look closely at raindrops and thank them. They are gentle and nourishing. A blessing, really. <clears throat> My second piece is titled Meditation. I'm trying to learn to meditate, to stop the constant fussing in my head, the what ifs, the can you evens, the why, why, whys, and the I better not forget to's. The smooth rocks of Picnic Beach shift as I nest my sit bones down. I shimmy until we settle all the pokey bits into a comfortable agreement. I straighten my spine and take a deep breath. I scan the beach for something to focus on. Rings of ochre, the texture of ancient suede, decorate the slab of pale granite along the high tide line. They are outlined by a pale green-gray fringe, small black patches, a legion of tiny desiccated fingers clasped in prayer form a horizontal bar, below which a velveteen skirt of bright green algae flows softly and gently down to the sea-smooth stones I breathe in. I breathe in, but my ankle bone has had it. I shift my bum. I think, maybe I can do this. I look back at the ochre-colored rings, at the granite slab. I want to wonder more about lichen and granite and things that are stuck right where they are, survive or don't. But the skiff and the crew and dinner I breathe out, reach down, and pull the offending small stone from under my angry ankle bone. A pale gray-green oval, bisected by a thin vein of ochre angling across its shape. I put it in my pocket and go. Thank you very much, Lizzie. Thanks, Orion. Okay, next. Gonna have Don Cornelius. The floor is yours, Don. I have a couple of poems here. First one is entitled Lawn Care. My parents taught me about lawns, all I should know. A uniform, green and short, trimmed to the margins, just grass, no weeds, 
no dandelions. I spent hours pulling them, pure and undefiled, as sterile as a th synthetic turf on a miniature golf course. They never talked about buttercups, about bees and butterflies, or even the birds I sometimes see spiriting them away towards their nest. So here I sit, surrounded by chaos. Inside I'm torn. Should I do as I had learned to do all those years? Do what, it, do what had earned me my allowance? Mom and dad are long gone now. Still their voices urge me, urge me off my lawn chair, surrounded by two tall grass filled with buttercups and weeds. But now I hear other voices. See beyond perfection, solitary bees, a great butterfly, a dragonfly, all flitter, flitting from flower to flower, unidentified insects, flying, crawling, scuttling, appearing briefly like minor actors in a play, then disappearing neath a weedy leaf, all depending on me for once not to obey, just once, to let them be, the weeds, the buttercups, and the bees. So instead, I leave the lawnmower in its place and write this poem, as I listen to the buzzing in the air, careful not to disturb my summertime friends. The second poem I have is, Who Shall Inherit the Earth? Perfect, the only word that could describe the place. Windows dominated the side facing the great lake, that vast lake delineating the eastern border of that Midwestern state. Windows and glass doors that allowed the 1960s decor rooms to flood with light as pure as crystal. You really couldn't want anything more, unless it was the view of the sand dunes leading down to the lake that filled those windows, unobstructed by any of man's creations, except the stone patio at the margin of the house, that patio with the lawn chairs to melt into and forget the stresses you came to escape. Perfect, except maybe the incessant winds and the flies. Flies, flies that savored the taste of ankles. Flies that found the thickest socks, comfortable launch pads to snuggle into as they prepared to indulge in their favorite delicacy, ankles. Sometimes you re retreat inside that place where those windows and the glass door protect you and your ankles from those flies, but still give you the lake and the sand to heal your soul until a fly, a soulmate of the ankle biter a fighter jet with no intention other than to harass. So quick, a futile slap and another and another yields naught but air and frustration as it pillow, pirouettes, slashes and dives around you, circling in tightly knotted figure eights before landing on your wrist, your neck, your nose in its diabolical, diabolic lustful glee as it shows which of the two of your species will someday inherit the earth. That's it. Thank you so much, Don. That's fantastic. Okay, I'm going to unmute Julie next. Hi. I'm reading a piece called Learning to Fall. Can you hear me, Oren? Okay. Learning to Fall, and it's dedicated and inspired by my Aunt Roxy Lee. The logs are slick and the moss is loose. I teeter between branches as I pick my way through these blown down spruce. Autumn light glistens through the trees still dripping from the morning rain. I stop and inhale sharply, 
taking in the smell of cedar and spruce bark, salty kelp on the beach, the curling alder leaves, the bittersweet smell of fall's decay, my favorite season. I shift the heavy canvas bag on my shoulder, full of wild mushrooms, bear spray, and binoculars, moving slowly, careful of my balance. The forest floor is deep with moss, but a fall back here could lead to a twisted ankle or a broken leg, and then I'd be stranded in the forest alone on the island. I think of my aunt, now turning 90. She showed me how to look for the chanterelles peeking out through the moss, and I remember her scrambling over logs like these, hiking through spiky devil's club and blueberry bushes, telling me stories of her early years in Alaska as the afternoon unfurled. When was the last time, years before she fell, before the hip surgeries? Was she just my age the last time we hunted together for mushrooms? There is no right way to fall. That is to say, we get older, and that is a falling all its own. I cannot imagine not being strong and limber enough to climb this green slope, yet it comes like loss, like tiredness at the end of the day, like the waning light of winter. The best I can hope for is the grace to say, like my aunt, oh, you brought me mushrooms. I'm so glad, and for that to be enough. The second piece was inspired by a prompt called Folk of All Kinds, and I call it who are the folk of my town? Rubber booted, wet wool covered, men and women with bright eyed children on the back deck, talking fish in the grocery store and at aerobics class. Fishermen standing like navigational aides on the corner by the hardware store, while bone tired cannery workers in bright oilskins lurch down Main Street between shifts. Scolding Norwegian matrons teaching by disappointed expectation, skinny addicts in hoodies walking. Once a woman playing saxophone in the middle of deserted Main Street at midnight, the sound threading up through the darkened town like everyone's loneliness let loose at once. Earnest teachers leaning forward towards bored and restless teenagers leaning backwards, working out their moves on the basketball courts in their heads. Older native women driving grandkids to the doctor with accents as soft as rain. Crabby old men at the Moose Club with all the answers and no audience. Nurses moving towards the emergency room with open hands. City workers at their desk, masking their exasperation. The harbor masters in the rain, walking, endlessly walking, clipboard in hand on the wet docks, counting, checking the hundreds of boats to the tune of grinding hydraulics and rumbling engines. Tiny children in rain gear on the playground with barely a set of teeth between them and always the dogs everywhere. Dogs on owner's laps behind the wheel in the back of trucks asleep on the sidewalk. All these folk perched on this stretch of beach, this line of pilings along the channel, this cluster of light at the edge of wilderness below the wide shoulders of dark mountains, all thinking this is the center of the world. Thank you, Julie. Next, Alec McMurrin will be reading for Dennis Spurl. From Living to Fish, Fishing to Live, Life and Trials of Fishing Fever in Alaska. The title of this poem is Breakdown Blues. Mm. 
When heading home from a trawling trip, a grinding noise was heard, and I, the captain, thought the worst. A breakdown had occurred. Yet slowly I kept heading home up the Wrangle Narrows route, alerting a fellow shrimping pal of the bearings about worn out. When shifting the gear, went kaput and left the boat uncontrolled. Reverse and forward both were gone as the saga did unfold. Through drifting free, port was reached because of helpful tow. Offloading shrimp was quickly done, then to the stall, dead slow. The innards of the clutch were trashed. It had been working well. How long the gear was in the boat, no one could ever tell. It was old, of manual twin disc type with 1940 date, performing great for all those years, but now had met its fate. The relic was probably retrieved from the beach of Normandy and then conformed to fit the boat for trials on the sea. The gear was rebuilt a time or two before I bought the boat. That now was helpless and idle, tied to the machine shop float. Dreams of the season slipping by spurred hopes of quick repair. But alas, no parts could be found, though the search went everywhere. A replacement needed to be found, which led to great despair. As lost fishing time made me the skipper pull my hair. The housing on the gear was huge, though the engine fit was right and the room to work and make repairs at best was very tight. But the old seaworthy vessel was narrow in the beam, and with low headroom twas enough to make mechanics scream. Removing the useless clutch meant cutting through the glass hold, cause it was the only way to move the heavy thing so old. A new twin disc was finally found, but of a different size, which caused more alterations than the men would realize. Finally, the surgery was performed to fit in the new gear, as the mechanics in the tight space worked on their knees and rear. The clutch was wider and quite short and deeper near the shaft. So as the workers cut and hacked away, they just about went daft. Beams were removed, of angled steel before the motor was lifted high, while careful measurements were made and the new alignment tried. A different language off was heard as sweat ran from their bow, brow, but despite cramped muscles and the heat, the men kept on somehow. Exhaust pipe, hoses, oil lines too, all altered to comply. Just added costs besides the clutch, making the captain sigh. The engine slowly was eased in place with pry bars and a wedge and hoists and chains and come-alongs and tapping with a sledge. <laughs> Rewiring the new controls installed both fore and aft to complement the new twin disc were added to the craft. A short stub shaft was fitted next, but everything took time. Meanwhile, the season disappeared. Missing fishing was a crime. The men ed edged the gear back and forth, working like crazy fools. And then they were satisfied the shaft was aligned after using their feeler tools. When everything was tightened down and connections were redone, the hold was patched and tools cleaned up. 
before the trial run. Two weeks were lost on the favorite grounds, with quota half caught now, but with the clutch work finally done, would make ends meet somehow. To shrimp again was in the plans, with no delay or lull, because now more payments were ahead. Such life is never dull. Thank you very much, Alec, and thank you, Dennis, as well. Thank you so much, Dennis, for uh, offering that up as some writing. And Alec, thank you so much for providing the reading there. Up next, we're gonna call Sunny Rice up to the stage here. Hello, hear me? You're, you're on. <laughs> I've got two poems. Uh, the first one is called Whale Fall, which maybe needs a tiny introduction. Uh, a whale fall is uh, when a whale dies way out at sea and um, falls down to the seabed out where there's very little other life and nutrients. And um, it creates entire ecosystems. Lots of life is uh, adapted just to, just to live off of these whale falls. So this poem is called Whale Fall. They say a whale fall is a miracle. Think of the lives it impacted. Entire ecosystems, they gasp. But I'm still thinking about the drifting down, the slow undulation from side to side, tip to tail, as the storm of neuron fire calms to a twinkle and the spirit releases its suction on each of the cells. It must be painful, mustn't it, to cast all that you were to the depths of the sea? And the next one is called Fly Fishing Number One. Above my head, an arc of yellow line, pressed forward to a soft stop, then back with a stiff wrist until it returns a gentle tug. Now one firm push and a little prayer drops the spray of pink and silver over the puddles of still and onto the wavelets above the river's hidden stone. Now the long drift to my left as I squint into sparks of sunlight, waiting, twitching, hearing only the skitter of the dipper on the far bank, then pull the line back again, showering drops like stars and send the fly on yet another flight. I play this rhythm five, 10, 20 times but soon that pool of warm sun, warming the mounds of moss at my back will prove irresistible. And I'll cross my booted feet before me, tug down the brim of my cap, let that big spruce's decades of strength cradle my back and drift with the river song along to the sea. What trout? <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you very much for that. And next we'll call to the stage, Sue Paulson. Okay. Mm -hmm. The denizens of the rainforest are many and varied. Bear, deer, squirrels, Republicans, Democrats, what have you? They make their marks on the landscape and on our psyches. 
Some marks are faint, some wide or deep, and some become landmarks in our geography. Harold Bergman cut a wide swath. Memories of him are embedded in our little part of the Tongass rainforest. Here's a brief memoir of a remarkable man. Harold, as I knew him. New York had E.B. White, we had Harold Bergman. They were the observers, the essayists with the pithy punchlines. They were inspired by the glories of nature and the frailties of man. Their forums and pulpits were the New Yorker and the Petersburg pilot. White reveled in Maine amongst the lobster boats, taking notes and comment to New York to share with the world, while Bergman lived in Kupernoff with a Boston whaler at the float, trekking to Petersburg to spread education with his liberal hand and to publish his school news. It was total immersion in literature with Harold in the seventh grade. Who could forget his impersonation of Raskolnikov, his readings from Saroyan, Thurber, and Dreiser? If Mr. Bergman caught you with a Reader's Digest condensed book, he would throw it out the third story window and make you read the Bible for an hour out of respect for literature. He was such a powerful reader, we smelled the fish on Cannery Row, despaired with Copperfield in that boot black factory and exulted with Sandberg in the city of the big shoulders. He probably coached Churchill in public speaking. We ran to class every day because we never knew what would happen next in Bergman's class. We begged him to expand his chest in imitation of a giant penguin, marveled at his imitation of a spawning salmon, dove under our desks when he announced atomic bomb drill. We wept with him at national tragedies and celebrated with him when satellites shot into space. No one could praise you like Mr. Bergman and no one could blast you as he did either. He strove to inculcate us with respect for our elders, and when William Bergman entered the room, we had to stand. His efforts with the paddle were legendary, but rarely necessary. Every first grader believed the portrait of George Washington in the lower hall was that of Mr. Bergman. It was, as Harold would have said, marvelous to be a teacher when he was principal. He believed in fun in our work, and if things seemed slow, he'd pipe some polka music through the intercom, drop in to tell fantastic stories, whip the students into frenzied excitement, and then he would leave. My geography lesson must have been pretty dry one day when a fifth grader complained one too many times. The complaints were rude enough to warrant a trip to the principal, but soon on the intercom, a serious voice informed us, Miss Vile is too tired and bored to go on, so we'll all have to leave early today. We had a relaxing laugh and rushed out into the sun. Every year, Harold published the names of the members of each class under their teachers' names in the newspaper, as is done today. One year, the name Abu Ben Adam appeared at the head of every list. A reference to the poem by Lee Hunt reveals the name was the head, uh, at the head of every list who, of people who love their fellow men. That is what he strove for in school, that we should love our fellow man no matter how hard it is. He worked on us after he retired from his job as principal. The city of Petersburg felt the shock when Harold disembarked at the North Harbor every Saturday. After oiling the wheels of commerce, Harold for nearly 20 years advanced on the radio station to share his outlook with the KFSK audience. Every Petersburger of a certain age will hear the voice of Bergman when they play the stars and stripes forever. The music illustrated his forthright approach to everything. When KFSK began, Harold was right there and when the use of certain words was banned, Harold said, they've just handed me a list of 10 words I can't say on the radio. 
And here they are. His readings from the Petersburg pilot were bombastic, opinionated, and funny. His clashes with Emily Miriam, dramatic. Exhausted from injecting life and excitement into Lake Wobegon, he would ship out for Kupernoff, reclining in the bosom of nature at his Petersburg Creek estate, flailing the croquet mallet to the champagne bottle as Alexander Wolcott did, and dashing off the essays for which he was famous. He battled ignorance, prejudice, and dullness wherever he found it, and left us inspiration to do the same. I wish E.B. White had known him. He made our life richer, taught us to observe the human scene with humor, to appreciate literature and the larger world it illustrates, to watch for the sandhill cranes, and above all, to be kind. Harold Burton. Thank you so much, Sue. Next to the mic, we're gonna invite Chelsea Tremblay. Thank you. I have two original pieces to read tonight. The first is from a physical piece of artwork that I made for the Haynes Fair. Um, it is untitled. And as I am a recovering academic, half of the language is not mine. It is from Tin Can Country published in 2019. Pine boards wound around pilings, multi-floor, single pane haven, stranger at the in one telegram, he asked if the Petersburg children who were to be evacuated should sell their bikes or toys, and if their parents should bring grub for the trip south. Information becomes insulation, shoved, twisted, fragile in the heat, keep the mystery closed. Along this same walk, two physically compromised Japanese men lagging behind were shot and killed by a lone guard, the only witness in the early morning of June 27th 1942. Damp seeping past defenses, decay knows no allegiance. Home is where the echo is. Food was to be provided, the response indicated, and the children should bring their toys with them. My second piece is forthcoming in the Alaska Women Speak Sanctuary issue. It's titled, We Belong to Us. We when a tree splits, does it groan? The release in knowing. Belong. Will the glacier remember the dew? The beginning never is. Two. Can murmuration be broken if it never had a shape? How can absence feel? Us. Is there sacrament in the sin who live in the shadows and know flame's true power? Thank you very much, Chelsea. Next, we'll bring Kari Peterson to the microphone. Hi. I was going to read one called Water. Water is my life. I need to be surrounded by it. It calms me, centers me. I discovered this during my first semester at college in the high mountain desert of Oregon. Several miles down very busy streets lay a duck pond, a glorified puddle. Every day I walked the busy, loud, traffic-filled streets to gaze upon this puddle. That spring, it was a long journey home with many obstacles. When we finally arrived at Bellingham and boarded the ferry headed for Alaska, my heart sang. 
I can still hear the warning from the purser. We are now entering Queen Charlotte Sound. Prepare for some rocking. I had made it home. When I need to think or to center myself, I hike the beach at Green's Camp. There's something healing about this body of water. The freshness of the sakin roiling into the salt water. The sheer force of nature in the bouldered beach and the washed up logs. It's a calm and restorative hike, always looking at my feet, at my next choice of footing, a meditation. When I stop and raise my head, I'm astounded by the beauty that surrounds me. The water, the wind, the mountains, the force of its life restores me. I learned that first year of college, I cannot live without the force of unbridled water and I will not live without it. Thank you very much, Kari. Thanks. Next, we're going to bring in Jane Fuqua. Let's see here. have to do a little bit of high-tech magic here to do this one. Hello. I'm Jane Fuqua, and I have two untitled and relatively unedited poems um, to share with you guys today. So thank you very much for having me, and I'm just going to jump right into it. Today, I am lost in the pattern of branches across my page, in the bell-like song of birds in spring. I wish I, too, could cross the peak of my rooftop floating on the fragrant breeze as the butterfly does. She moves without direction, a soft wisp-like being guided by wind song. My bones are heavy, they do not bend, like the wooden beam, the window pane, the hot pavement, the straight path of the aeroplane. And I see my folly now, laid out, not in lack for effort, but for soft acceptance of what is. For a fate is graceful as a river, I have been a stone. And on this spring day, blessed by the hum of bees in vivid desert blooms, the soft-footed lizard whose path follows its lunch across the wall, I hollow out a space in my own chest. I am open like a fish belly. My bones slide forth, little ships in a flood of what has been, rising like the cloudless sulfur butterfly, like autumn leaves or the hunter's moon, I ascend. Loosening my grip, each finger peels away from the muddy roots of time. I let go and I am carried forward. We'll just go straight into the next one. <clears throat> How strange that after so much wondering, after countless days spent forehead to window pane and pen to paper, you arrive like first light, splendid, but so very ordinary, as if you had been rising beside me each day and I had not slowed enough to notice. And now, 
in the space between, when the sky is hazy purple, I watch your chest rise, then fall, then rise again, as it has always done. The birds have not yet awoken, but there is a singing in my core, a deep involuntary hum, and if I hold my breath, like the grackle and the wren, mute my light like the stars against an ever-brightening sky and listen. I can hear the softest waves of sound resonating in the space that stretches from your fingertips to my cheek. I realize that after so many days spent waiting for the earth to shatter, for my soul to shift and the sky to crack open, I find myself unfurling slowly, a seed sending out spider-thin roots like quiet anchors and moving cautiously upward. In this dark bed, I wonder how glorious will be the first touch of sun. Thank you very much, Jane, for that. And we're making good time, I'd say. Um, let's see. I think I had a short intermission plan for now, but I'm going to look at look at the gallery here. Should we just keep on going? How, how are folks doing? Carry on. Carry on, cries the chorus. Okay. I love it. Um, in that case, I am going to unmute Kathy Cromland. Hi, am I on? Okay. Am I on? You are. Yeah, welcome. Okay. Okay. I wrote this um, this piece to commemorate the uh, centennial of the sinking of. Am I on? Okay. The centennial of the sinking of the Princess Sophia in 1918. Um, the poem is in two parts. The first is October 1918. The second part is um, October 2018. And it sort of uh, parallels the experience of people coming from the north down to the to Skagway and on down the coast, which my husband and I have been doing for many years. It's called Usual Southbound Trip, October 1918. The golden leaves had fallen, the mountains touched with snow. Freeze up wasn't far away, and it was time to go. Farewell to Dawson City friends. Their summer work was done. They hoped to pass the winter in places warm with sun. Their steamboat lay by the riverbank, so up the ramp they climbed. While steaming up the Yukon in elegance, they dined. They disembarked at Whitehorse to board the White Pass train. The click and clack of wheels on tracks sang a calm refrain. Through mountains, peaks, and valleys, through scenery of renown, they stopped to eat at Bennett, then on to Skagway Town. And there she lay at dockside, their steamer poised to sail, the proud Princess Sophia with passengers and mail. With all the latest instruments, a thoroughly modern ship, she headed to Vancouver, her usual southbound trip. But Lynn Canal was waiting with wind and wild waves. Loom, October storms on Lynn Canal bring mariners to doom. 
Somehow that night, a bad mistake brought terror, death, and grief. The proud Princess Sophia ran up on Vanderbilt Reef. They set out on the radio a message of alarm. The captain told the passengers, no fears, keep calm, dress warm. Small Juno boats soon tried to help the waves would not subside. The captain thought the princess would float on the rising tide. The storm returned and worsened. Rescue was not to be. By dawn, Princess Sophia had slipped into the sea. October 2018. The golden leaves have fallen, the mountains touched with snow. Freeze up can't be far away, looks like it's time to go. Farewell to all our Yukon friends, to every aspen tree. We're off to spend the winter in a village by the sea. Through mountain peaks and valleys, through scenery of renown, we follow the Klondike Highway and soon reach Skagway Town. And there she lies at dockside. Our ferry now awaits. She's loading up her cargo, people, cars, and freight. With satellite navigation, a thoroughly modern ship, she's ready to leave for Bellingham, her usual southbound trip. We drive onto the car deck, then leaning on the rail, admire the views of Lynn Canal as smoothly south we sail. But if you listen late at night, no, it must be a dream. For as we pass by Vanderbilt, was that a cry, a scream? And now for something completely different, totally off topic. This is called, I Saw It on YouTube, A True Tale in Four Limericks. I've been watching too much YouTube this summer, as many as I have. And this apparently did actually happen in Germany this summer. I Saw It on YouTube, A True Tale in Four Limericks. A sunbather all in the nude sat quietly eating some food when a wild boar ran by, snatched a bag from the sky in a manner most greedy and rude. Stop, that's my laptop inside, the irate nude sunbather cried. Not wearing a thong, he raced through the throng of onlookers by the lakeside. The crowd gave a cheer and a roar as the nudist chased after the boar. No more playing tag, the thief dropped the bag and ran to the woods once more. The nudist returned to his station, receiving the crowd's adulation. But the bristly looter who stole a computer now has my complete admiration. Thank you, very nice. Sorry. No, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Kathy. Okay, let's see here. Next, it's we're going to invite Mike Schwartz. Can you hear me? Yes, sir, we can. That was wonderful. That brought some laughter to us. I'm going to read something that's in contrast to what we've just experienced. Of course, we've had the wettest summer that any of us can remember. And I wrote this in September of 2013. It's September now. We've had the driest summer that anyone can remember, day after day of sunshine, 
no water in the creeks. I'm at the cabin now looking out on a sunlit valley. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my mother witnessed this same scene over and over again. The chair sits unoccupied overlooking the barn creek. My mother stood there years ago, mesmerized by the quiet stream and the humpies that made their way up the clear flow of pristine water. My father woke from a nap, stood up, stretched, and gazed out the window to witness a large black bear walking slowly within feet of my mother's back. She was completely unaware of its presence as she stood spellbound by the scene in front of her. The bear quietly walked by her, ignoring her presence, and moved into the creek, where within seconds leaped upon and captured a salmon in his powerful jaws. My mother, startled now, watched as he walked to the other side of the creek, laid down, and began tearing the flesh from the carcass. My father, completely in a panic, but unable to do anything about the sequence of events, went to her and held her in his arms as they both realized how fortunate she was. The creek now is without fish. They lay by the thousands schooled in the pool at Hoagie's Hole waiting for the rain. The stream is too warm and without water, the salmon sense they will suffocate and die without enough oxygen. The grass is turning now from a vibrant green to a lovely gold. The millions upon millions of tiny golden stems dance in the wind as the sun reflects off their surfaces. It's a sea of splendor, waiting patiently for the rain and the movement of fish to where they must be in order to carry out their circle of life. The stream glistens in the morning sun and waits for the arrival of the pinks to deposit their eggs in the sand beneath the surface of the quiet running water. The trout swim amongst the thousands of humpies, patiently waiting too for their migration into a spawning area where they, the trout, can feed on eggs that escape. The cycle of summer is beginning its transition into fall. The silvers have arrived and show themselves leaping into the air on the incoming tides, making themselves known. Their silver bright sea life still clinging to their skin. They are succulent now and will last through the winter once they pass through the smokehouse. Fortunately, most of them will escape the hook and the line and make their way up the main creek to complete their cycle, guaranteeing the world that there will be more. We spend the day and night here, immersed in a pageantry of grace and wonder at the splendor of this place and are so thankful to be a small part of it. It reminds us of our insignificance and the small role we play here. Our goal in all of this should be to make sure it remains the same for the generations to come. They too should be able to feel the peace and solitude of this most spiritual place where life is simple and the proof of the great spirit is all around us, giving us hope for those who are to follow. The wind has stopped. The grass is quiet now. An eagle soars overhead. The small creek sings its song to us. We are at peace in this most, most special place. We wait now with the fish and the bears for the rain to come. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike.
And next we will invite Chris Weiss. Hello. Um, my story is not about the rainforest. <laughs> <laughs> the unfortunate Mr. Pufferfus resembled his name due to gout and loathed the attention that bred. Accordingly, when he went out, he donned a large pair of bunny slippers so lifelike, their noses almost twitched. Today, however, was not a day to go out. Swallowed by the chair near the fireplace, Mr. Pufferfus could ignore the desperate scratching of trees trying to get in. Evening threatened the sky into darker grays. Clouds responded, throwing windy rain tantrums. Mr. Pufferfus still sat, concentration shrinking his form as the overburdened ottoman angled toward the fire. Dark arrived, inhabiting shadow shapes and curling about corners. Flames flickered, animating the yellow pages Mr. Pufferfus quietly turned until none were left. Embered ash settled. Empty chair cooled. Night, well-fed and rested, roused, blinked, and stretched, long, thin, transparent. Thank you so much, Chris. Okay, next, we're gonna bring Bill Moulton to the mic. Uh, this is a piece uh, written in response to a prompt in a workshop. It's called Pack, Pack Rats and Prickly Pears. Like algae and fungus co cooperating, he said, I thought of pack rats and prickly pears. You remember me telling about that? I asked my wife, who sat beside me in the afternoon sun. Our Labrador puppy, Artemis, <clears throat> sat near her, chewing sat near her feet, chewing on a bone until distracted by the hoop of a solitary train. She remembered. It was one of my firefighting stories. Imagine a pregnant rat in a harsh desert looking for a nest, a home, someplace shaded from the sun, dirt easy to dig and moist for her babies. She finds a solitary young prickly pear plant. Its spiny ping pong paddles will protect her den and the fruit when ripe will be juicy and delicious. She digs the nest, feathers it, aerates the soils, and the little ones poop there, which fertilizes the prickly pear, makes it grow bigger and the fruit juicier. It's a good home. So her children stay and dig barrens of their own, feather the nest, aerate the soil, turn the earth, so the prickly pear grows higher and thicker and branches out. A hundred years later comes the desert fire, racing fast through the sparse vegetation and a young firefighter to mop it up. And he marvels at the wonder of it all. Everywhere, charred rock and sterile soil, sterile soil but here, an oasis for pack rats and prickly pears. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. 
Next, we're going to bring Erin Candle. Hello. Can you hear me okay? I've had phones in. Okay. This is a piece inspired from a writing prompt from one of my first writing workshops. To gather. The hues of summer vegetation are withering, allowing the next season's growth to take the spotlight. Growth is inevitable here. We gaze out upon cranberry patches of moss. The berries perch upon earth's pillowy chest, rich and red and ready for the harvest. A breathtaking contrast to the wheat-colored grass and relentless mossy greens that persist through every season. The colors make me long for warm sweaters and nights by the fire drinking in the crackle, wincing at the occasional gust of smoke dancing through the air to sting my eye. We wade through the saturated bogs, squashing around on our grundin-covered knees, heads down in a dedicated search for the next ripe berry. Two hours go by. The sun shifts. I see my breath in the shadow of the wiry old spruce draped with bearded moss. We come up for air. The sun begins to snuggle under the horizon. The clouds descend. Heavy mist now blankets our shoulders. We welcome the feeling and lose ourselves in the wetness. Water floods the pores of every living thing to capacity. The ground seeps like a sponge too full to hold, too full to hold another drop. The fog becomes relentless, so dense it muffles everything. We find each other's eyes and resume the hunt. Heads down in the foggy bog, entranced by the sound of single berries plunking into the bottom of our buckets. And just like that, we were picking cam cranberries in the clouds. Thank you, Aaron. Up next, Cole Somerville. Hello. Uh, this is a short story. I think I started writing in the first workshop we did. Uh, it's called Tommy. How is he? Up and thrashing like he used to. That's great. Ten years ago, he'd shown up. Growing from seemingly nowhere, a man hundreds of stories tall with arms the width and length of jet streams and a chest, and a chest broader than the horizon. He came up from behind the mountain overlooking our town. Naturally, the first response to his presence was horror. This was only magnified by his apparent desire to extinguish the life that had sprouted here. Within moments of his appearance, he flung his hands down upon the schools and the church spires of this town. He drug his hands across the asphalt and the trees that remained standing. Families clung together and many confessed feelings of affection, malice, or condemnation in their last moments. Only, his great hands seemed to pass through everything they touched. All the buildings and children he tried to smother stood still. There was no destruction. Everything was as it had been. And so for days he raged above the city. When tiring, retreating to behind his mountain, as the feelings of immediate distress faded, life began to go on as well. There were new couples, new divorces, and a handful of arrests. He would tire and then come on in a fit, letting, before letting out a grimace and spitting some sort of bile or other matter that didn't seem to raise the sea level, nor erode any infrastructure. Eventually, the citizens of this town named the giant or golem or god Tommy. Years passed, and the citizens grew affectionate toward the man who continually seemed to want to destroy them. This affection sometimes took the form of pretending to be terrified of his assaults during which they would cower in fear, staring up at their executioner, then fleeing as he noticed their gaze and flung his hands upon them. 
This went on for some time, but inevitably situations arose where villagers talking were interrupted by phantom hands falling from the sky, after which they would look up at Tommy and shake their heads. Tommy's face began to look hollow. The thrashings above the city grew less and less, and the townspeople began to grow concerned for him. On January 19th, the town meeting was called, and after addressing concerns over the growing costs of electricity and a road sign suspected of being stolen, the health of Tommy was brought to the floor. The mayor spoke first, as he quite often entertained Tommy. I believe we've all noticed something about Tommy isn't right. There's something that just doesn't add up with my view of the world. How can something so big be harmed? He seems to me that with each snubbing you all give him, he feels physical pain. The town doctor at this spoke up. Mr. Mayor, respectfully, I must call into question as to whether such a thing can experience pain at all, or any other physical sensation for that matter. By all experiences, he seems incapable of coming into contact with anything other than the earth and presumably himself. Yet, doctor, you must admit the last months have had a dramatic effect upon him. He must have nerves of some kind, physical or not. I won't rule it out. However, I have a theory that I believe accounts for non-physical cells. A few people at this phrase murmured excitedly. Many, however, had already left the hall above the public library, their issues with energy prices having been resolved or ignored. Well, go on then, the mayor spoke. I think many will have observed in Tommy decreased activity, loss of appetite, and if I may so, say so without causing alarm, weight loss. The doctor was right. Everyone agreed. His fits were less frequent. No one knew what he ate, and he certainly slimmed down since his arrival. Ruling out the potential for physical diseases to affect his non-physical cells, we can rule out all but cancer. The murmurs in the room grew exponentially. Doctor, you think Tommy has cancer? Admittedly, it is impossible to be sure without a proper examination. But given his size and temperament, I found it difficult to fit him in for an appointment. Well, if, we did have, if he did have cancer, how would we even treat such a thing? The logistics of the thing, I, I'm unsure. But given his relatively mild symptoms thus far, there is both the chance we've caught the disease early and that it has yet to spread through his mass. The trouble comes when I consider where the cancer could be localized. At this, a councilwoman's eyes rose to meet the eyes of the doctor. I know where the cancer is. The doctor appeared stunned by her certainty. You do? He paused. I, I mean, he paused again. You do? Oh, come now. It's not so hard to figure it out, is it? The doctor looked to the mayor, who shrugged in response. A few other men shook their heads to each other. Have you ever seen a man so ineffectual, so impotent? At that, a few sighs and averted eyes emerged. The doctor appeared to take this in for a moment. Hmm. Yes, perhaps you are right. In which case, we'll need to find a way to x-ray his genitals. Do we have anything in the hospital even remotely capable of that? No, of course we don't. At least I, I don't think we do. Maybe a physical exam. You don't realize why that won't work. Well, maybe the balls are solid. Why would only the balls be solid? Well, I don't know. Perhaps he is like an atom. How would we even treat him? Radiate him? Like drop a bomb on him? The doctor once again spoke. I will ascend our mountain tomorrow, convinced in my convictions, but will go to confirm my suspicions. And how have you decided to diagnose Tommy, the councilwoman spoke, through visual examination? That next morning, the doctor and three others returned from the mountain. That evening, fire trucks were loaded onto a shipping barge and sent across the straits that separated the town from the mountain. Tommy looked down on us, then averted his eyes. The trucks arced and sprayed. Positioned along the mountain, 30-foot jets shot up from the trees and ridge and passed through the skin of Tommy before doing the leaves. Chemo dripped from their leaves to their stalks to the dirt, then pooled and flowed in channels and into streams, and in a torrent merged with the sea. In days, the trees and Tommy grayed. The needles in his hair fell to the bare soil. Tommy's great girth and fits of rage changed. 
Entirely comatose, the skin of Tommy seemed to stick to his bones. The townspeople would look up from time to time and occasionally murmur something along the lines of, that's not quite right. Before the first person looked up, maybe by chance or by the gnawing feeling of discomfort and recognized. In a week's time, Tommy stood above the town, no more than gray skin stuck to a colossal bone frame. His eyes roamed, and from the first notice of this change, the townspeople now heard a low moan that loomed through their homes. Doctor, this can't be right. He may fight it off. He's a single step from death. One more should do it. The mountain and Tommy lay bare. Once again, the hoses started. Tommy looked down and cast his long, thin hands as wisps upon the town. The people stood and froze as mile-long fingers of eels gasped among them. Tommy's body stopped, as did the writhing. For six hours, Tommy's frail body arched over the town. His bald head merged to the crown in the town dump. His eyes stared, unblinking toward the bald mountain he birthed from. Then the townspeople watched as his limbs fell from his body and crashed his air upon the dirt. His head fell from his shoulders and his mouth passed through the filth. His body disappeared and all but the barren stone mountain remained as a reminder Tommy had ever been. His body and eyes dispersed near dusk. The people of the town walked around. They bumped into each other saying little. No one made eye contact. The mayor, among others, found himself at one of the town's many bars. He drank alone with some others, then together. In others, the spectacle had a climactic effect. In that same bar and across town, people drank in excess and walked into bathrooms and onto sidewalks vomiting, putting themselves and others and others inside themselves, grasping at hair, hands, breasts, ankles, all that was within arm's reach, they took and were taken. Many fought near midnight and a few went home upon seeing the moon, regretting being anywhere at all. Still, some stayed in their homes. Tommy's death had been nearly silent and some were unaware of his passing until well into the next day. Upon hearing recountings of Tommy's death, those who had not borne witness found themselves nauseous. His death had been ugly and without dignity. The mountains stared bare. Those people went home and found themselves manic and aroused. Two days passed, and on the third morning, residents milled about once again, the fervor possibly having dulled, but each resident still susceptible to fits of lust and wrath. The sky was overcast as it often happened to be. Children went to school and their parents went to work or to bars. Tommy raised his once again full palms to the sky. The sun was already obstructed. He stamped his feet and roared. The citizens one by one noticed Tommy, once again at his full mass with hair sprouted from his head. The sight of them calmed their fervor and at once returned the feeling of agitation to their chests. All but the doctor rejoiced. Instead, he seemed to dip further into his temperament. Again, again, we have to start the pumps again. This he screamed on the street on the way to the mayor's house. Bursting through the door, the mayor's neighbor stood cooking in a nightshirt. Where is he? In the bedroom. Sir, have you stepped outside? Bursting through another door, the doctor now found the mayor in the process of dressing. Like his neighbor, nude from the waist down. Sir, have you been outside today? Um, no, I have not. Don't. I need permission to let the trunk pump again. We need another round of chemo. The mayor stopped. I think I should go outside. And he did. He stepped out onto his patio and stared up at Tommy roaring in the sky. His hair regrown and he kept staring. His eyes seemingly forced open while he let out a singular whisper through his throat. Something that refused to be more than just audible. Then Tommy looked back at the mayor and the scream let loose from wherever it was stuck and hands flung down upon the mayor. The concrete, his home, his neighbor's home, his neighbor's wife the doctor, and everything as far as three neighborhoods away. Tommy's great hands covered the island, and when he lifted them, all was as it had been. The mayor's scream had peaked as the hands fell, and a flap in his chest or lower throat now felt raw. The neighbor's wife had rushed to her husband, upon which he asked why she wasn't wearing underwear. The doctor remembered he'd forgotten to water his plants for nearly a week, and across town, man momentarily pledged their souls to gods or de other deities, 
All else was as it had been. As Tommy lifted his hands to reveal the spires and tin, his back arched forward, and from his great heaving maw rushed a torrent of bile and salt and all that was in Tommy. Over his mountain before him descended his body's water, a flood of red that upon touching the sea immediately dispersed. Tommy's eyes were hollow. My God, the cancer still afflicts him. That night after a town meeting, the pumps were turned back on and the trucks sprayed their fluid along the ridge. Tommy once again seemed untouched by the chemo that sprayed through him. While the mountain was soaked, Tommy looked over the village while his crown burned. In the morning, he had lost his girth and hair once again. His scalp blistered. Another day and he was skeletal. On the night of the third, his eyes became the only part of him visible. His pupils dispersed and in the sky sat three moons before two once again fell. The hysteria afterwards was perhaps less. The wife of the mayor's neighbor was frequently beaten by her husband, but seemed in it to find pleasure. The doctor wandered, went to work, and felt at times that his skin was electric, while the councilwoman fed her husband to death and was pleased all the while, then grief-stricken, and in that too she found sublime satisfaction. There is one peculiar detail I feel I must mention before concluding this account. I spoke to my father yesterday morning and we got to talking about Tommy. He told me he was doing well and that the chemo this time around may do the trick. I was thrilled to hear this and exclaimed after 10 years, Tommy could finally be free of what ailed him. My father sighed at this and sounded exasperated as he told me it had been more than 40 years at this point. I told him that was impossible and he told me I could ask my mother. She indeed said the same. My father got back on the phone and asked, what did she say? She said 40 years. What did I say? But I remember the moment he appeared. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe you'd never looked up. Thank you, Cole. Thank you very much for that. Up next, we're going to welcome Angela Denning. Here is a little fiction I wrote for the festival with the prompt Rainforest. It's untitled. The beep, beep, beep of my alarm clock hadn't been making sense for weeks. It could have been any time of the day or night. I'd slowly part my eyelids to test out the world and was met consistently with a gray darkness coming through the window. It wasn't 3 a.m. by accident, and it wasn't November or December or January. It was just another cloudy summer morning, and it had been like this for days and weeks and months. Dark gray before, during, and after everything. It was like living inside a snow globe, except instead of a winter wonderland, it was a dense fog that you couldn't escape. At some point, I had stopped checking the forecast because of the monotony. It was the same dim grayness as I got into my car after work on a Wednesday. As I flipped on my lights, I heard my phone ding. Do you want to go look for mushrooms this weekend? Catherine texted me. A surprising question, I thought. Not because I had never been hunting for mushrooms before, but because I hadn't heard from her in months. A full-time job, three kids, we each had them. Days just rolled together. I went through a quick mental checklist and responded, Crazy. For some reason, I think Sunday could work, but I don't know what to look for, I added. I do, Catherine texted back. I remembered that her correspondence was always no frills. Days later, we were walking through a muskeg to some forested area Catherine knew. She led and I watched as her rubber boots went in and out of the spongy, pale green surface. Squish suck, squish suck, squish suck. For about 20 minutes, the rhythm was the same until we reached an opening in the trees. 
The world became greens and browns, and we felt the temperature drop and the air grow humid. It smelled spicy like a greenhouse, but with muddy undertones. Then it dawned on me, it wasn't raining. In fact, it hadn't been raining for days. Can you believe it's not raining, I said aloud? Yep, Catherine said. There should be some mushrooms somewhere. She immediately started climbing around moss-covered tree roots, stopping here and there to look underneath some enormous skunk cabbage leaves. Here, she said, holding up some golden brown spindly things, winter chanterelles. See, there are no gills underneath. Kind of looks like brains, don't they? Yeah, I could see that. Grayish veiny undersides, no gills. I got it. We separate and come back together and separate and come back together for about an hour. Oh, wow, I hear her say loudly. There's a bunch over here. You have to see this. I make my way around some trees and she was leaning over a downed nurse log, pinching off several round orange mushrooms from the forest floor. Hedgehog, she said excitedly, standing up, showing me the hairy undersides. I take note of that and go back to looking behind a huge tree root nearby. I strain my eyes, wanting to filter out the golden brown colors from all of the varying greens. Another hour goes by. Eek! I hear Catherine say from a distance, you have to come see this. Probably more hedgehogs, I think. She has much better eyes for this than I do. I squish my way around a few prickly devil's club branches and crouch down next to her. Hanging from a rotting dark brown log a few feet off the ground or a couple of oval-shaped fungi a few inches long. They are covered in stringy hairs. A pair of testicles, she said, and burst out laughing. Then she pulls a large winter chanterelle out of her bag. Testicles meet labia, and she holds up the purplish-brown cap several folds deep. I lose it, and we both roar with laughter. No one is around to hear us. After another hour, we have partially filled our paper bags and we head back to our vehicles parked up a gravel road. The firmness of the rocky terrain is a welcome break from slogging through wet muskeg and forest, and we are making good time. I listen to our crunching footsteps and watch the dusty surface of the road rising above my brown boots. Wait, was that some legs? Hey, Catherine, wake up, I say, and I backtrack a few steps. Studying the ground, I see the flattened remains of a toad. It was so smashed that if it weren't for the back legs and webbed feet, it would have looked just like a dirty piece of old leather. Oh, I love toads, Catherine said. Poor little guy. Poor little guy indeed. He was probably out looking for slugs at night and then... How unexpectedly tragic, I say, as we start up the hill again. Glad it's not us, Catherine said. At least not today, I say. When we reach the trucks, Catherine says, I better look at your mushrooms. And she pulls off her backpack, sighing with relief. Oh yeah, yeah, you probably should, I say. She lowered her tailgate, which was shielded in a clean black plastic covering. I turned my paper bag over and watched dozens of small golden brown mushrooms scatter onto the surface. Catherine quickly picks through it and only tosses one out. We say our goodbyes and get into our vehicles that are separate. We don't make future plans. Our friendship is kind of like the mushrooms. It'll stay underground until the time is right. And then it will emerge and give us sustenance. Thank you very much, Angela. 
Up next, Melina Marvin. I have um, a few pages of fiction I've been twiddling around with. Ina was no longer struggling. Enough summers had passed beneath her bare feet and harvesting hands for life to be only a steady drumbeat and buzz in her ears. The break the virus had wrought in 2022, mutation, death, more death, and the period of uncertainty that rippled from its bow like a dissipating wave in the channel were all long past. Now the days thrummed with her living, repeating chores, reviewing the arc of the sky as she had once checked the weather app on her phone. Before the mutations, Ina had begun to provision a cave on the far end of the island, overwhelmed by the deteriorating social conditions. The fighting that started online started verbal and then got worse, much worse. She believed she was the only one who had found the cave in her era, Few townspeople roved the backcountry by foot as meticulously as she had while tracking, hunting, and harvesting. When it was time, the cave became a refuge. She snacked and read and napped in its third chamber, a tall cavern softly lit by a mossy top tunnel up into the rainforest, so that the light of day sundialed along its red pool, its silent beach of fine limestone sand, the black-spined ferns that clung high to its eastern wall. Cycles of sun and moon passed. She orbited the cave, occasionally scouted down mountain and to the road, growing lean on venison, salmon, and the last of the stores she'd spent months caching in white plastic buckets below ground. After seven years, one jagged mistake with her knife led to a hot and wandering infection across the muscle of her outer right forearm. It drove her to trek back to the town. She needed drugs. 20-something miles by the shore road, but she traveled directly overland, following her own game trails that grew brushier the further she ranged from the cave. She found the town blessedly blank, silent. She hopped pools of evening shadows to the clinic, where she kicked a boot against the door to break the rust of the latch. Ina had followed some other rhythm to the cave, and now she found that it had been the beat of the longer life she was meant for, that she was a bridge, a scampering, blinking bridge from what had been into what would be. She took shelter in a small shingled house by the harbor of the town while she waited for the medicine to work. She healed there and decided to stay. From its windows, she monitored the harbor with its forest of masts and rigging that still bobbed on the floats with the tides. She felt ready to join the others who would stop there and didn't want to miss the boat when it arrived. She left the town each day to hunt the zones between high and low tide, found fishing gear and deployed crab pots when the tide was out. She plied small watercraft on calm days, dropping line for whatever slick creature she was strong enough to pull up and to kill. She lived outside, sunrise to set, but she was often roving an interior landscape populated across time. She spoke with voices from before. She tried to reason with them. She gloated about being right in the end. She encountered 
shrubbing for red huckleberries in the misty spruce and hemlock of the island's northern shore, future friends she hoped and expected to meet. She exchanged whispers there with a lover she meant to take, stopped and stood in the thick moss of the rainforest and felt the broad of his future chest, the grace of his shoulders as taut as her own from living somewhere else as she did now. Inner, outer, her days sped on, call of loons across the water, weaving into the cries of the daughter she envisioned she would one day birth. The morning she saw a boat offshore in the sound, the external and internal voices dimmed to a distant point. An incoming tide of adrenaline rushed her veins, jackknifed her senses. It was a piercing blue morning. Ice floated diamond bright in the sound, refracting sunlight on the water's surface. The sails of the boat billowed like curtains, propelling it south with the current into her channel. Ina flowed parallel to the boat, trotting behind the houses along the old shore road, back toward town and the harbor. Eagles whistled their screams, which she could not unbraid from the thudding of her heart and hiss of her breath. She glided quick and quiet over the land, her efficiency and economy of motion sharpened by time, like the blade of an ax on whetstone. The sailboat slowed to tie up at the tip of the harbor's northernmost finger. The slip had last held a painted steel vessel, long since corroded, drifted, and sunk. She waited behind the old harbor master's building, gulls starting and circling the sapphire sky above. Ina had learned to know her feelings and she felt no danger here. She saw what seemed a family tumbling off the boat and looking up the dock. A woman raised a hand to shield her eyes from the glare. With the other, she grasped the arm of a child. For a thin moment, all birds went silent. Ina strode out to meet her. There was nothing to lose except being alone. Thank you, Melina. Wow, okay. We've, we've flown, flown fast through our list. Um, I'll read something to close it out here for us. Two things. One I wrote yesterday in the writing workshops here for the uh, Rainforest Festival. One of my favorite forms of poetry to play around with is called An American Sentence. It's Allen Ginsberg invented it as an adaptation or a variation on the haiku. It's a 17-syllable poem, and here's two of them. The self-made man is a myth. Why are we so tempted to believe it? Who benefits most when we fail to work together? Not you, not me. Some poems. <laughs> this piece I call Post Office. Many ancient communities arranged their domiciles around a central common space. It was self-evident that when people share common spaces every day, they see each other and care about each other. 
The Roman Empire understood this and developed the Roman colonial grid to render newly colonized lands manageable from afar. The colonial grid broke the circle of homes, pointed people away from each other. Law and order, right angles, tall fences, a colonization format so successful it was broadly adopted and persists here in our very own empire. It remains true that people who don't see each other can forget to care much about each other. That's why I love my town's post office. Here in rural small town Alaska, we don't have postal mail home delivery. Everyone goes to the post office to get their mail, no matter their class or address, race or creed, without meaning to, we have drawn a circle onto the colonial grid and we see each other's faces there. It's one of the few truly common places we have holding us together. The Postmaster General's recent changes have been making things harder for my local post office. Thanks to staffing shortages, we only have two hours each afternoon to pick up packages. The line to the counter stretches out the back door and down the sidewalk sometimes. Folks waiting try to socially distance, though half or fewer wear masks, and the mood can be tense in that long line. But being there together, neighbor and stranger side by side, sharing time in our most common place, I feel hopeful. Well, that's smart, says Cheryl from the store, nodding at the book I'm reading in line. I smile at her. She says maybe she'll bring a book next time too. Cheryl and I might not see eye to eye on very much, but here we are, eye to eye in the post office. So I am gonna go ahead and, uh, let's see, try to unmute everybody. I don't know if that works or we can all voluntarily unmute ourselves. Now I'm gonna put it on gallery view so I can see everybody's faces and just hello and thank you for being here, everybody. <laughs> Round of applause for everybody who read. <laughs> My sincere appreciation to uh, our, our steadily growing literary arts community here in this wonderful place we all share. And a big thank you to the Rainforest Festival for um, inviting a writing group to, to host this reading. And I hope it's the first of many such um, opportunities to share writing together. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you everybody. Thanks. Thanks very much, everybody.